It's a good reminder that we continually pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I remember when I first accepted Christ within that uh, first year of my discipleship of understanding that uh, he, was, he was coming again and that I would see him face to face. And at that point, I was uh, about 17 years old and, and I thought for a moment and I thought, you know, Jesus is coming back and within the next 80 years. Jesus is coming back in the next 80 years. And, and I was just convinced of that prediction. And the reason is, is because I was almost 20 and at 80 years, I'd be almost 100. So Jesus is coming back for me. I don't know when he's coming back for you, but he's coming back for me. And now that timeline is shortened. Uh, I'm 51 years old. And so I can tell you with confidence, Jesus is coming back for me within uh, the next 50 years. So... Um, <laughs> If I live to 102, you can call me a false prophet, but uh, <laughs> listen, we, we should all anticipate, you know, as, as uh, we look at the world around us and we can get frustrated, we can get down and, and we can just feel like things just aren't going well. And, and quite honestly, uh, in the book of Peter, that first and second Peter, we were reminded we shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> Don't be surprised at the trials and the different things that come upon us and that we're faced with and and uh, that the world is the way that it is. In fact, we're told multiple times by Jesus, uh, this is the way that things go. This is the direction that things happen in the world. And, and so we shouldn't uh, deride it or be, you know, just be frustrated and cast stones at the, the world for looking the way that it does. Instead, Jesus calls us to participate with him and to bring the kingdom of God to this world. And uh, to be not just ones who I can identify all the problems, but ones who can bring real solutions and real healing to a world that is broken. Well, starting next week, uh, we're going to take some time to talk about living in a healthy community. Uh, it's part of our discipleship series, and uh, we're going to be continuing that. And what does healthy community look like through the lens of Scripture? Specifically, uh, this vision of what is a vibrant church. When we talk about healthy community, there's community in, around us and where we live, but also just in terms of what is healthy community for us as a local congregation? What are some of the things that would reflect that we're walking in the life of Christ? And so I'm excited uh, for us to get into that. But I wanted to take this first Sunday of the year to talk about communion. Uh, we are a church that actually offers communion every Sunday. Uh, when I was first coming up in the Lord, and many churches offer communion once a month. Uh, they pick one Sunday a month, and they bring it out, and they share communion all together, which is what we're doing this morning. But then we also offer it every Sunday. We, we have it uh, up here by the platform where an individual can come forward and take the bread and and dip it in the juice that's there and receive communion individually. And I felt like it's important that uh, we understand what we're doing when we receive communion. And it takes, uh, I always give a little bit of instruction the first Sunday when we receive it together, but I felt like it merits a little more instruction and understanding of what communion is. Why do we do it? What's, what's the value? Because oftentimes it's viewed or through the lens of just a a religious experience or a, a sacrament, uh, and depending on what your tradition is that you grew up in, uh, really kind of gives you that lens through how you see communion, what, it, what we're actually doing uh, by receiving the bread and the cup. And so we're going to take some time this morning just to look at Jesus' instruction around communion, 
what is our response in, in receiving communion, and, and then we're actually going to practice it by receiving the, the bread and the cup. Okay, let's pray as we turn to the Word this morning. Father, we thank You so much for this time to come to the Word, and thank You for Your holy presence that is with us. We do have this real sense of awe, Lord, as we prepare ourselves to come to the table this morning, that You have done something wonderful in our eyes by giving Your Son. And Jesus, You have done something magnificent by going to the cross, giving up Your body and giving, shedding Your blood so that we could be whole. And by resurrecting from the grave that we would have an opportunity to experience the resurrection life ourselves. And so Lord, I pray that Your, your Word, Your Scriptures would come, to, uh, come alive for us this morning. They'd quicken our minds that uh, we wouldn't Lord, just kind of take this as an opportunity to do something we do on a regular basis once a month, but Lord, it would spur us towards uh, identifying with you and really being in greater union with you. And so we thank you for this time and we bless your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I want to just highlight a couple differences because people, as I said before, when we talk about discipleship and when we come to Christ, we come from different backgrounds oftentimes. Um, how many of you, for instance, I won't embarrass anybody, but just slip up. How many of you were, when you were born or raised and you started with the Foursquare Church and you've never been a part, a member or attended another church? Foursquare is kind of your church background. There's a few. I, I saw Pastor Mark over there. He just shot his hand up. Born and bred, Foursquare Church. Uh, that's beautiful. We, we love our heritage as a Foursquare family, but uh, how, how many of you, of course, you don't have to raise your hand. So many of us come from different, or we've had different experiences and different exposures. So I, I just wanted to highlight a couple of the differences so that we understand kind of what might be different for one group versus another group. For instance, Roman Catholics, uh, the Roman Catholic Church teaches the miracle of Mass. And so when they receive communion, uh, there's a word there, and uh, it's, it's a word that they use, a the theological word called transubstantiation. And the idea behind that is that the bread and the, the wine actually become the body and the blood of Christ. So they're not symbols or they don't represent, they actually become those things. So Christ, there's actually two miracles that they teach happens. One is that Christ becomes, uh, is physically present in the bread, and Christ's blood is physically present in the wine. And so when you receive communion through the Roman Catholic Church, you're actually eating of his flesh and you're drinking of his blood. And the second miracle is that they don't actually change their substance. So you're receiving bread and you're receiving wine, so they're not, you're not drinking blood, and you're not eating flesh, right? There's some faces here. Ah, oh. you can understand why it's a difficult teaching when Jesus said to his those followers, he said, "Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part with me." Right? It's a hard teaching, and so this is how the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, remedies that: as they say, no, it becomes his flesh, it becomes his blood. However, the substance or the the elements they remain bread and wine. So you're still receiving 
bread and wine. It's just that it's two miracles that then create that dynamic. And so that's how the Roman Catholic Church approaches it. And if you grew up in, in the Roman Catholic Church, you would understand why then in, in, when they receive communion, it's a, it's a very, uh, very highly held uh, ac- action or, or a sacrament that they, that they participate in because they are carrying out the body of Christ. They are carrying the blood of Christ. And so in, in one sense, it, you know, we would say, well, I mean, that, that doesn't really align with an evangelical tradition. But on the other sense, there is a sense of awe about what they're taking part in, which, is, which there's some value in that. And I always find it important that when we look at other traditions that aren't similar to ours, we ask God, Lord, would you highlight something out of that that we would say could teach me something, something that, of value that I can learn instead of maybe picking it apart? Because I would say, well, it's, it's not physically it hasn't become the flesh, and I wouldn't say it's physically become his blood. So I, I don't identify with those things, but I, I do value the sense of, of uh, holiness and, and the, the greatness that they put on receiving communion because it's such a, a holy sacrament. And so that's the other reason that they don't discard the wine. Uh, priests will receive all the remaining um, wine that's not used in communion uh, because you wouldn't just pour out uh, the blood of Christ or dispose of the body of Christ. So that's, that's real surface level. That's one of the differences in terms of um, Roman Catholic Church and the way that they receive communion. Lutheran Church is a little bit similar, but Martin Luther, when he, he didn't like some of the elements of the Catholic Church, of course, and so one of the things that he changed is he said, let's do away with the miracle part of it. <laughs> let's not talk about, we still believe Christ is present in the wine. We still believe Christ is present in the body, but they, they don't look at it through the same lens as the Roman Catholic Church. And so there's still very much an embodiment of Christ, but it doesn't take a miracle in order for him to be very present. And so it's just slightly different than the Roman Catholic Church. And then the evangelical church, which our uh, Foursquare would be a a part of the larger evangelical body uh, of Christ. And, And so there's varied views within the evangelical church, but but one of them uh, is purely symbolic, that Christ isn't present in really any of it. It's just that we take bread and we take cup and we just remember Jesus at, at that point. Others would say, no, he's very present that when we receive the, the bread and uh, the cup, that the spiritual, Jesus still is, remains on the throne, so his body isn't here. We're not receiving the, the blood and the, the, the uh, body of Christ physically, but his spirit is very much here and present with us as we receive him. So just fine distinctions between different churches. But we would fall under that evangelical category where we recognize that it's bread. We don't believe we're eating the flesh of Jesus. And we also recognize it's the cup and we have juice here instead of wine, but uh, same idea, we receive it. It's not the physical blood of Jesus. But very much we recognize his presence with us. And we remember him by receiving the bread and receiving the cup. So throughout Jesus' ministry, uh, he gave more complete context 
to the things that we see in the Old Testament. And communion is certainly one of them. We call it communion, but when Jesus shared it with his disciples, it was the Passover feast. It wasn't, he didn't say, let's go receive communion together. We'll look at the scripture in just a moment. He said, we're going to receive the Passover feast together. And uh, this is exactly one of the ways in which Jesus redefines things that we see in the Hebrew scriptures. And he gives them a fuller meaning for what they, what they can really hold in our lives. And that's really a big part of what Jesus does. So Luke chapter 22, if you turn there, if you have a, uh, your Bible, Bible app, uh, and it'll also be on the screen, Luke 22, verses 14 through 20. And so what I mean by Jesus gives a, a, a more a fuller, more rich context for uh, things that are found in the Hebrew Scriptures is that when we look in, in uh, the book of Hebrews, one of the things that it talks about is how the things of the Old Testament are shadows. They're images, but they aren't the substance of what was yet to come. We find the substance in Christ himself. And that's why we see Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. We see Jesus as the fulfillment of what was to come or what was foretold in, in the Hebrew Scriptures. And so when we look at the life of Christ, it's almost like God is taking a flashlight from the future, shining it on Jesus' light, and that projects back a shadow towards the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. So we actually can see Jesus in the Old Testament because He is the substance of things that happened before Him. Does that make sense? When we see a shadow, we have the substance, the light is shining, and then the shadow is behind. And so if we think about the Old Testament, more of a shadow of what was yet to come, that's a great picture. And so when Jesus comes, he illustrates that a number of times, and and his life is the fulfillment of many things that we see from the Old Testament. Now, parenthetically, let me say, we have to be careful, though, because sometimes what happens is we only use the Old Testament and we look for Jesus in everything that's there, (laughs) as though they didn't have any actual truth to them in, the, in and of themselves. They didn't have any, uh, uh, they don't have historical context. They didn't have any value in and of themselves. They absolutely do. Uh, God was using Israel and, and just his, and even prior to establishing the nation of Israel. So we want to read the Old Testament for face value for what it is and what it has to teach us. And then after we've done that, we can look and say, is Christ, where would I see Christ in this? But it can be a, a, not as helpful to us if we just hunt for Jesus throughout all of the scriptures and superimpose him over the top of that without first understanding what God did in the Old Testament. So just, a, just kind of a parenthetical thing in terms of when you're reading scriptures, read it at face value first, read what's written and understand it in its context, and then look for Jesus in that and what would... God be saying through that passage. So Luke 22, here's Jesus. He's preparing. He's already sent the disciples ahead. They're, they're borrowing a room uh, to have their Passover feast. And so the disciples have gone ahead and prepared the Passover feast. And this is just before he's crucified. And so right after this meal, he's, they're going to be dismissed. Uh, Judas is going to go and betray him. And he and the disciples are going to go to the garden. And so this is really their last opportunity to, to be together really as, as, a, as a group. Luke 22, verse 14 through 20. 
It says, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with, uh, with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. And and so a, a redefining, in essence, of what Jesus does here with the Passover feast. And for us, uh, it's lost a little bit for myself, for those of us who didn't grow up in Jewish culture. This is one of those earthquake moments in Jesus' teaching that kind of we read through it and we see them breaking bread and we say, oh, communion. We kind of jump to what it means for us, communion. But if you're a Hebrew listener, if if you're reading this and you're understanding the Passover feast, and then you look at this, it's, it's really an earthquake, earth-shattering moment as Jesus, in essence, redefines the, the real focal point of the Passover feast. It was a monumental event each year for the Jews, a significant time, and, and I don't know if I could equate it to Christmas or Easter, but it was a very high event for them to celebrate the Passover, a special feast. And the significance is both that it was a religious and a historical celebration. When they sat down to the table, it was a holy moment because they are celebrating the feast and and recognizing what God has done. But that second part, recognizing that God had delivered them out of Egypt and they were once slaves and now they're not slaves. And they're to be reminded of that, God's great deliverance for them, that while they were captive, it was by God's hand that they were set free, and set free through the Red Sea, across the desert, and then entered into their promised land. And so as they received the Passover feast, they're reminded that God passed over them and struck down the firstborn of the Egyptian children so that then they could be set out as as, uh, Pharaoh told them, get out, because they were so overwhelmed with grief for the destruction that had happened upon their land. And so as they're receiving the Passover feast, they're reminded of God's deliverance. They're reminded of what He's done uh, for, for them every time they receive this feast. Exodus 12, uh, verses 3 through 13, let me just read through it. It won't be on the screen, but this is the directions that were provided to the Israelites as they were to be Uh, delivered out of Egypt. It says, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house and uh, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. The lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall uh, take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts, and, excuse me, 
and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and with your staff in, hand, in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on your houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Wow, what a powerful image, isn't it, of just... God's coming to execute just, uh, judgment, he says, upon the gods of Egypt. He's already performed other miracles. He says, this one I'm going to pass through the land, uh, land. And when I see the blood of the lamb on your doorposts, the death angel will pass over. You won't be struck down. Your firstborn won't be included in that. And you'll be able to be delivered uh, from Egypt. And so they're, intent, they're supposed to remember what God has done in that moment. That by fastening their belt, putting on their sandals, being ready to go, they're going to eat this Passover meal and then the deliverance is coming and they're going to hurry out in haste. And so they're remembering this through the Passover meal. So that brings us back to Jesus meeting with the disciples. He's sitting there and he, he takes the cup and he passes it out and he says, distribute this among yourselves. He takes the bread distributes that, and when he takes the bread, he gives thanks for it. He says, this bread is my body. When you receive it, remember me. Does the same with the cup. This is my blood of a new covenant. When you receive it, remember me. If you're a Jewish person receiving the Passover, and all of a sudden your rabbi, your teacher, completely redefined. (laughs) He didn't discard what happened. He says, Here's the greater significance. This is no longer just a remembrance of your deliverance from the past. This is my body. It's no longer a meal that you're taking to remember that I delivered you out of Egypt. This is my body that is coming and it will be your deliverance. This is my blood. This is no longer the blood just that you're supposed to remember the lamb's blood that was upon the doorpost. Jesus says, this is my blood. When you receive it, remember me. Such a powerful picture that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And I I hope it hits you the way that Jesus intended to speak it right to the heart of reordering this idea that it's not just a remembrance of a historical event. It's a remembrance of Jesus' active work of deliverance. When he says, remember me, I'm sure the disciples are thinking about all their interactions, thinking about all the ways that he brought the kingdom, remembering their own personal calling when he said, Andrew, follow me. Matthew, follow me. And he begins to call them. I'm sure each one of them were hearkening back to that day when they heard Jesus tell each one of them to become his disciple. He says, remember me when you receive these. It's a powerful picture of God's work from the past, but then Jesus pulling it all the way forward and saying, this is not deliverance just from 
what events happened historically. This is deliverance for you individually. So if Jesus is reassigning the Passover, which we now receive communion, and that's really our, because we don't practice a Passover meal, this is what we do. We take the bread and we take the cup. And we take those elements, instead of celebrating the whole Passover meal, we just take those two elements out of it and we place them. And then it's for us to receive the cup and to receive the bread. And then we include those same words, remember me. In fact, it's put on the front of our table here that we do this in remembrance of Jesus. So what is it that we're remembering? Let me make just a couple points about what God would call us to do in remembrance, what Jesus' invitation as we come to the table. The first and the most clear and most powerful is remembering our deliverance out of the slavery of sin. Remembering our deliverance out of the slavery of sin. We too were slaves. We were slaves. Not to an Egyptian master, but to our flesh. We were slaves to every appetite, every longing. We were slaves to uh, anything that had happened to us in the past, anything that we felt our circumstances, our socioeconomic circumstances. We were slaves to sin. We were captive to our appetites, powerless to anything but pleasing the flesh. In fact, isn't that the mantra of our culture, right? If it feels good. Do it, right? We've heard it. We know it. If it feels good, do it. That's, that's the mantra of the culture around us. That's what's always been the, the saying of the culture is appease or, or please the flesh. Why deny what feels so good? If you want to have a relationship that's outside of the bounds of, of God's scripture and outside the realm of the spirit, do it. That's your decision to make. If it feels good, if it pleases you, do it. If you want to uh, use substances that give you certain highs and help you escape your life and, and not have to think about it, then why worry about it? If it feels good, do it. And that's always been the mantra of the culture. This isn't just modern culture. This has always been the culture. I, I sometimes, um, you know, want to just put caution to, to those of us who have been around a few decades now, that uh, we tend to look through the lens and say, oh, it's just getting worse and worse and worse. Kinda? Do you know what was happening in the days of Jesus' life? Some really wicked stuff. All kinds of terrible things were happening in the culture. Things that if they were happening in our culture out in the open... I mean, I, I know we have our feelings about our political leaders, but boy, their political leaders, <laughs> they had this whole other thing going on. And so, I, I don't want to try to make it sound like everything's good. No, we recognize we need redemptive work of Christ, and we need deliverance. But, but let's not get into a comparative of it's worse now than it's ever been, and, and this generation's worse than this generation. No, 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 no. <laughs> You know what we've all been slave to? Sin. You know what we all fell under? Judgment. You know what we all struggle with? The flesh. 
It's not this generation, that generation, this time in, in the world, that time in the world. No, it's been historical. You know when it happened? Is when Adam and Eve disobeyed in the garden. That's why God has that out there for us. He says, this is when it all started. Is when you chose your way over my way. When you had more arrogance and pride in your heart and you said, I can chase, chase a, a desire in my life instead of pursuing my heavenly father. That's when it went down. It's not a generational thing. It's not just a cultural thing. It's, it's not a time in, in history thing. It is a humanity thing. And God illustrates that throughout the scriptures over and over and over. And he says, this is going to be a humanity thing until Christ returns. And so the deliverance that we have is the deliverance over the slavery to sin, the slavery to our flesh. Can I, can I give you a good news message this morning? Sin has no power over you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we, we, we have no space to say, well, the devil made me do it. <laughs> the devil has no authority in your life. Here's the one thing that the enemy of your soul can do. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, here's what he can do. He can lie to you. And he can get you to believe that lie. You can listen to those lies and you can believe them. But you know what? He has no authority over you. He has the influence to try to get you. That's why his names are accuser, right? <laughs> the liar, the thief. He comes to steal things out of your life by lying to you that it's not yours. or you Lie about your birthright, your identity. And so that's the authority that the enemy has. You have power in Jesus Christ over sin. The question is, are you believing a lie that is holding you in slavery? Or are you recognizing the truth that God has set you free? So you might say, well, you know, Andy, what is it then? What is it that makes me keep doing, as the Apostle Paul said, keep doing the things I don't want to do, and the things I want to do, I don't do? What is that then? Isn't that victory over my life? No, no, no. That's just you again giving the enemy, the devil, a foothold in a place in your life because you've created a habit of doing it. You've exchanged the pleasures of God, which are delighting in his presence, the, what we've talked about in our discipleship of living freely and lightly. No chains. Nothing holds you down. Your past doesn't determine your future. You're not afraid of it. You don't run from it. Your future, you don't fear because you know who holds it. You, you don't live under condemnation. You don't second guess of whether God's even present. You know he's present with you. You live freely and lightly. And nothing holds you down in this life except that you're just waiting for Jesus to come back. That's the only thing is gravity right now holding you back because you live freely and lightly. That's the invitation that Jesus makes to us. But then comes the enemy with a lie that says, you know what? God's not caring for you. You're going to find, you know what, your flesh, you have natural desires. You just need to please those natural desires. You know what's going to make you happy right now? Is if, I, I know you're trying to do self-control, but if you go ahead and just eat that quarter piece of, of the pie, if you just eat that half a pie, you're going to finish that and it's going to make you feel good, that comfort food, and, and you're just going to feel good. It's just going to take away all those worries that you've had. 
I know God could sue that. God says he's going to sue that, but you know what? That's going to be more work and it's going to take more from you to sit and abide with him and listen to him and allow him to speak to you. It'd just be much easier if you just open up the fridge and just eat a bunch and just start feeling, feeling better about yourself. You know what would make you feel better than being with God right now is you've got room on that card and you can go shop for some stuff. You know that feeling when you just buy something new and it just makes you feel good. Like things just, I just feel better with a new outfit or, you know, I'm just going over to Home Depot and I'm getting that tool. And once I get it, I just distract me and play for a little while. And I just got this new power, 18 volt, you know, cordless uh, tool that I get to work with. And that's, that'll feel better, right? And of course, the obvious one, nobody's looking. You know, it's going to satisfy your flesh a little bit. Just, just click on that. Click on that image over there and just kind of delight your eyes for a little while. Take your mind off of other things that are going on. Get yourself an escape. Reality's too hard. Reality's too much. You can't handle reality. So escape. Get away from it. Don't go to God. He can't help you. He's not here. He's not present. Go get away from it all. Just give yourself an escape with a drink, with a smoke of weed with whatever it is. It's going to just calm you and set you back and allow you just to ignore the world around you. Now, having brought those things up, (laughs) we don't live under law, right? We live under grace. We live under freedom. So I'm not going to stand on the platform and tell you, well, you shouldn't do this, shouldn't do that, shouldn't do that. I'm not going to make a big list because there's, there's no need. You're under grace. God loves you. He loves you. He's not condemning you. He's not condemning me for the things that we do when we turn to things instead of him. There's grace, there's mercy, there's forgiveness. But I've always remind, been reminded of Paul's words to us where he says, listen, all things are permissible. Not all things are profitable. All things are allowable to me, but I won't let anything have mastery over me. Is there anything in your life that has mastery that you've submitted over and over? Not because it has power over you. As a follower of Christ, again, you have authority. You have the strength to overcome the flesh and the appetites and desires that you have. But is there an area where it's just been more convenient just to kind of keep giving in to that one area, that area of your life that it's just kind of a soothing spot for you? You find comfort in it. And you're at a point now where it seems like it has its teeth into you, where you couldn't stop it if you tried. And instead of it being a soothing, it becomes this moment of pleasure, a week of regret two weeks of regret, a month of regret, because it has its teeth in you. I want to tell you that sin has no mastery over you. It has no lordship over you. Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, he is Lord over sin, and he's broken its power. So what you have to do is recognize that that's a lie, that that's going to satisfy you. And instead, you turn towards Christ and turn towards the pleasures that he offers you to delight in his presence, to delight in the fellowship that he's provided, to delight in his word, to delight in worship, to delight in all of the creation that he's offered to us to experience 
and draw closer to Him instead of drawing closer to our appetites that so easily can entangle us. The only spirit that occupies a Christian is the Holy Spirit. There's no room for the demonic. There's no room for the the spirit of Satan. And so when we say the devil made me do it, we're really kind of giving ourselves an out. (laughs) We're just saying I chose to do it instead of submitting to the spirit that is within me. We can be oppressed by spirits as followers of Christ. We can feel oppression. We can feel heaviness by spirits uh, of the demonic. But the spirit that is alive within us is the spirit of Christ. So we don't fear. We're not anxious. We're not worried about the devil controlling or dictating our life. We have the freedom to say, enemy, you have no place in my life. The Holy Spirit has full control of my life, and I just want to submit more and more over to him. So when we're remembering, we're remembering our deliverance out of the slavery of sin. We're remembering what Christ did when you accepted Christ and you said, yes, Lord, forgive me. I want to know you. I want to be a disciple of yours. We're remembering when we come to the communion table that he set us free from sin. We're also remembering that he's continuing to set us free from sin, that he is overcoming the lies with the truth of the gospel. He's overcoming the lies with the truth of the word that we are a free people delivered The reason that the Israelites celebrated Passover and they continued to celebrate it, it would have been ridiculous for them to celebrate it if they were still enslaved in Egypt. It would have been a very hollow celebration. Hey, let's celebrate Passover while the Egyptians stand over us and beat us and drive us into slavery more. Do you know it would make no sense to come to the communion table this morning unless you recognize you are set free. You're no longer under a slave master called sin. Your future is no longer being directed by a slave master, taskmaster named Satan who would push and move your life this way and that. No, you are free. Whom the Son has set free is free indeed. And nothing holds you back from fulfilling His life and His purposes in you. The other thing we're remembering is that Christ is leading us in the kingdom of God. We haven't just been delivered out of sin. As the disciples would have sat and broke bread and drank from the cup, they would have recognized all that Jesus did. In retrospect, if they had done this years later, as they would reflect it, as they came around the table together, they would have thought about the cross, yes, but they also would have thought about all of Jesus' teachings and the healings and all the things that he did. When, when we say, do this in remembrance of me, if we only apply it to the cross, it's too narrow of a focus. It's too narrow of a scope to think about remembering Jesus. No, we, we remember the cross. We remember forgiveness. We remember the resurrection. But we expand it far beyond that. We remember that He is the representation. He is God in the flesh. He is the representation of the kingdom of God. And when He was on the earth, He brought the kingdom. And the things that He said, the things that He did, we remember those as well. That He didn't just come, though it's magnificent, He didn't just come to bring forgiveness of sins. He came to bring us into the kingdom of God. He came to bring us into a kingdom where there's healing and deliverance, where there's a kingdom where a good news message can be on our lips, that God is for you, not against you. God is the healer. God is the provider. God wants to set you free. The kingdom of God is present, but it's not yet full. 
So we remember that Jesus brought the kingdom so that we could walk in the life of the kingdom and we could also anticipate the yet-to-come kingdom. So in remembering, we don't just focus on the cross, though yes, that's wonderful and it's glorious and we need to remember that, but we broaden it out. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. We remember that he set the captives free. He healed diseases. He delivered demoniacs so that they could be in their right mind. To those who were anxious and on the outside and they didn't know what life held for them, he gave them a place at the table. For those who were lost and they felt like their life had no worth, Jesus spoke to them that God sees you, he knows you, and he has a purpose and a plan for your life. Jesus says, remember me. Just as Moses led the people out of Egypt towards the promised land, so Jesus, in a much greater way, he delivers us out of sin across the desert of this life so that someday we'll be in the promised land of heaven. Can't wait, can you? To be in heaven with him in that promised land. But until then, we're not left just wandering aimlessly in the desert. We're left with his power and his presence.